Microbe Mail has made it around the sun twice. Yes, this is our second anniversary episode. And because we're feeling kind of brainy for getting this far, we've decided to talk about an infection, which is kind of brainy too. This episode is all about things related to meningitis. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. Ruan has joined me again as co-host today. How are you doing, Ruan? Ah, good, 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 Vin. Excellent. And our expert guest today is Professor Sipot Lamini. Sipot, thanks so much for joining us on Microbe Mail. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? No, thank you, Vin and uh, Ruan, and a uh, pleasure to be here with you. So I'm an infectious diseases specialist based down here in Cape Town with the University of Cape Town and Khudastia Hospital. Uh, I'm an adult physician and I've been practicing as an adult physician in infectious diseases since 2013. And during the course of my work, I see a whole host and variety of infections, uh, including some which we'll be discussing today. And in terms of my research interest, that really covers uh, interest in HIV and TB and mostly related to adverse drug reactions, uh, related to the medications that um, these patients would get and just helping patients walk through that. Uh, And then the other interest I have is in adult uh, vaccine preventable uh, infections. So the use of vaccines in adults to prevent these vaccine preventable infections. So that's uh, just something about me. Great. Thanks so much, Sipo. So I think some of those expertise are definitely going to come out today in this talk about meningitis. So just a couple of quick reminders. Remember to sign up for updates on the Microbe Mail website. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, as well as on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, as well as Facebook. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, and we post updates on episodes, etc. fairly often. And remember to give us a rating on your favorite uh, podcast player as well. One last reminder is to share Microbe Mail with any of your colleagues, friends, and students. So just a quick little bit tidbit about this anniversary episode. Our team has put together some clinical and laboratory questions related to meningitis. And Vinita and Ruan have been quite busy walking around asking clinicians and lab staff about these questions. So we're going to play what our participants had to say and basically what the word on the street is first, and then we'll hand over to Sipo for an expert lowdown on each of these questions. So guys, are we ready to get brainy on this? Yeah, let's go. Awesome. So I think we should give our participants also a chance to introduce themselves. But uh, Ruan, I believe we had a couple of shy ones who want to remain anonymous. Uh, yes, no, I don't think they have anything to be shy about considering their, their responses, but, you know. <laughs> Such it is. Okay, so let's listen to the few brave souls who are willing to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Tabelo Diale, medical technologist in microbiology. Hi, my name is Tabelo I am a clinical medical technologist. Hello, everyone. My name is Ndombi Ngalichane, and I'm working at Tambo Memorial NHLS Laboratory. Uh, my name is Fatwani Ralutaka. I am a medical technologist, clinical pathology. Hi, I'm Dr. Mahovo. I'm a pediatrician at Tambo Memorial Hospital in Boxburg. Um, hi, I'm Dr. Daoji, one of the pediatricians at Tambo Memorial Hospital. 
Okay, so I think we're going to start with uh, clinical questions first. Ruan, do you want to head into the first one? Okay, so first question. What is the most common cause of community-acquired meningitis outside of the neonatal period? So let's give our participants a shot. What did they say, have to say? Okay, Dr. Mahova, so your first question is, what is the most common cause of community-acquired meningitis outside of the neonatal period? Hmm. Well, I would have to say, I haven't seen much outside the neonatal. I guess you could still get late group B strip. I'd go with that. I would say strep pneumonia. It's going to be streptococcus pneumonia, nasira gonorrhea, haemophilus influenza. Oh, cool. Just just one. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> nasira meningitis, strep pneumonia, haemophilus influenza. Streptococcus pneumonia. So I think in our country, in this uh, setting of um, a lot of people living with HIV, uh, cryptococcus neoformans will be a common cause. And then secondly, um, streptococcus pneumonia. Our expert, Sipal, uh, what do you think about the, this question, community-acquired meningitis in the neonate, outside the neonatal period? I think listening to the responses from most of the people that were interviewed, I think everybody identified strep pneumonia as the bacteria that's the common cause of meningitis outside of the neonatal period. I think what is interesting is that um, when you just look at our adults, uh, and one participant really did uh, highlight this, was that in adults, especially with HIV, that cause of meningitis is quite different from those who don't have HIV. So the commonest cause of meningitis in HIV, people living with HIV would be cryptococcal meningitis. And then the second one would be uh, strep pneumonia and uh, number three, TB meningitis. Uh, however, strep and TB, depending on where you are in the country, sometimes do compete in terms of uh, number two or number three. But I think many people, quite rightly, in general, uh, strep pneumonia outside of uh, children is major cause of bacterial meningitis in the community. Oh, thanks, Ipo. I was actually wondering whether enterovirus might not be the most common cause of acquired meningitis. Outside of HIV, I, I mean, I, I think that it might be the case, but, you know, it's probably a bit head-to-head -head when, we, when we're thinking about cryptococcal meningitis versus strep pneumonia in HIV in people living with HIV. Any thoughts on that? I don't, I don't really know the, you know, the, the incidence per se, you know, with, when you're now, you know, on the, on the wards, do you, do you get that impression or are, they not really, are you not really consulted about those cases? No, Ruan, I think that's a very important point. I think uh, viruses people often think about but uh, don't mention. I think one of the issues is probably just testing, right? So you are right uh, in, if, you, if you just probably look at all of meningitis, viruses, especially enteroviral infection, is going to be uh, there. And obviously, the, the, you know, the ability to test for for our viral cause of meningitis is really uh, dependent where you are. So in our big hospitals like Puriskir and other uh, big central hospitals, we often are able to do these tests and, and differentiate that. So yes, 
I would agree with you that um, uh, enteroviruses uh, do play a big role in cause of meningitis. And I think many of the participants probably were uh, rather focused on uh, what they see or test, which would be the mm -hmm. bacterial pathogens, uh, rather than actually considering all forms of meningitis, uh, whether bacterial or viral or even non-infectious. I mean, yeah, I think the question was probably also a little bit unfair in the sense that, you know, depending on the time of year, you know, that what the most common cause is probably going to change. Like, I mean, recently had a mumps outbreak here. And then, I mean, it was almost every single case of meningitis. Well, 90% of them would have been. But, but yeah, I, I think, you know, coming, looking at that question is probably very much about, it's very difficult to say, you know, an entire group just outside of neonatal period, you, you probably have to kind of think about time as well as specific populations to really answer the question. But yeah. Yes, yes. So if you think about it, Ron, um, if you your approach to young adults or even adolescents in terms of meningitis, then, you know, things like viruses probably sort of feature very highly. Uh, and uh, if you think about the elderly, then, you know, again, there could be different pathogens that that uh, certainly rate highly. All right. Thanks, Sipo. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to take you into the second question, which is what meningitis pathogen is associated with processed meat? Let's see what the participants have to say about this one. I'm going to guess and say it's a salmonella species. Listeria monocytogenes. Listeria monocytogenes. Well, um, what comes to mind uh, is Listeria monocytogenes. Um, well, it has been associated uh, with cold meats and, yeah. Listeria? Listeria monocytogenesis. Ooh, those actually sounded quite interesting. Sipo, can you give us a breakdown on what this one should be? No, thanks, Vin. Um, this is, again, a very interesting question and some interesting responses. Many identified uh, listeria as the pathogen uh, that's associated with processed meat. And I suspect that's related to our recent experience mm. of uh, uh, listeria outbreak that we had, I think, almost four years ago. And that was uh, certainly associated with um, uh, exposure to a meat product in our setting. So I think that one, many of the participants uh, recognized. Yeah. as uh, an association with this infection, which is listeria. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, and, and, and it's quite important, I think, that our participants actually recognized it as an important cause. But I think you're right. Um, if we hadn't had that recent, and it was a massive outbreak, from what I understand, it was the largest described outbreak of listeriosis um, ever described. So it, it, it is good that our clinicians are thinking of it and that it's on the top of their list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will be interesting also just to see if people do make the connections um, uh, and are able to make the connections of those who are at risk. So, you know, while, you know, processed meats can, you know, everybody's at risk because of that exposure, but there are uh, people who are at higher risk mm -hmm. of, of, of listeria outside of this uh, particular exposure, which um, I hope that um, people do recognize. So certainly um, listeria in late in pregnancy mm -hmm. is something that people should should recognize. 
uh, listeria in adults, uh, especially those who are either have ethanolic liver disease uh, is, is, is one. Um, HIV um, is recognized, but uh, not a huge uh, risk factor. Right. But I suppose any uh, condition that compromises your immune system mm. would put you at risk. And then I think the bigger age group, you know, just outside of sort of pregnant women would be the elderly. Uh, I think that is what probably mostly is missed, is that the elderly uh, probably have a higher risk of acquiring this infection. Given uh, what happens to your immune system as you age, um, it gets weaker. So vulnerability to some of these pathogens uh, is there, especially Restelium. Yeah. And the patient group that goes with the pregnant woman, obviously, is is the newborn baby. So they come yeah. together as a pair, basically. Yeah. 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 No. Great. Thanks for going through those risk factors as well. I think those were that that was important. If I can just uh, throw a curveball in there, so that the other the other pathogen in my um, that that jumped out at me, you know, there's the listeria, which is a just the, the obvious one with our especially in South Africa, but hepatitis E, um, which you know, while we consider it a, a hepatitis pathogen, it can cause neurological symptoms, really. And uh, it, it, it always, it's always in the back of my mind when we think about processed meat, because like, Euro- like Europe, where they have genotype three, um, which is associated with things like boar meat, um, in South Africa, we also have genotype three, which is quite a little bit different to other low and middle income countries, where genotype one, which is the one that's kind of associated with explosive waterborne outbreaks, it's it's yeah South Africa South Africa's genotype three so it's it's always in the back of my mind not really typically as a meningitis pathogen mm-hmm. but something to think about mm, that's interesting thanks Ruan yeah that's very interesting yeah but again as you've highlighted Ruan it's something to think about uh, and then I think that's where the labs also help because it's it's all well and good to think about it uh, are we able to test for it. Yeah, no, that, 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 that is often the difficulty. Great. Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump into the next question. What is the recommended dose of keftriaxone in bacterial meningitis? So let's, let's hear what the participants have to say. 100 milligrams per kg per day. Uh, 200 milligrams per kg per day. So two grams, two hourly for 10 days at least, 10 to 14 days. In adults with normal renal function, usually two grams um, intravenously twice a day. And then in children, I think it's also given in higher doses to make sure there's enough concentration reaches the CSF. So we do 50 milligram per kilogram, 12 hourly. Okay, okay. Some good answers there. And C4, can you, can you unpack this, this question a bit for us? Great. That's, again, a variety of responses there. Uh, some, uh, I think, had a pediatric um, sort of leaning on giving a pediatric dose, but mm-hmm. most were answering the questions for, for adults. And I think most got it right. The dose is two grams of keftriaxone and given uh, 12, 12 hours apart. And then obviously given for the duration uh, or for, for meningitis, which is 10 to 14 days. So I think many have the dose correct i think one or two probably didn't say the the you know the how how often to give it um so it's 12 hours um apart so it's twice a day dosing 12 12 hourly 
for the duration of 10 to 14 days. So I think many will treat bacterial meningitis adequately with the right dose and obviously keftriaxone being the first go-to for our treatment for bacterial meningitis. So if I, if I can just uh, ask, so I, I mean, with, with Neisseria meningitis or Haemophilus influenzae um, or strep pneumo, you know, keftriaxone's the way to go. But uh, what what do you think about cases of, of of staph aureus meningitis, maybe associated with neurosurgical procedures? Would you still go with with Keftrax? And I know at least from our side in in micro here in GSH, we <laughs> we have some strong opinions either way. Um, what's your, what are your thoughts? So I think uh, Rod, that's a that's a very good question. So I think if you're looking to cover staph, there's a question about whether keftriaxone is adequate. I think it's understanding the epidemiology of your staph. So uh, if it's an MSSA, uh, you know, then uh, methylene sensitive staph aureus, then keftriaxone may be just adequate. But of course, if you're worried about methylene resistant staph aureus, then uh, keftriaxone is probably not the go-to. And uh, if you're worried about staph, I think the best, uh, and while you're waiting your microbiological cultures to come back, you would have to probably give keftraxone and say vancomycin, and then make adjustments uh, once you get your, your, your result. So yes, there is some difference in opinion sometimes about even methylene-sensitive staph about just using keftraxone or should you not be using something more specific. But I think that's really related if you're wanting to cover other pathogens other than staph. So if you think you've got mm. polymicrobial infection, then there's sense in, in having keftraxone on board rather than just uh, giving something like kefazolin or cloxacillin. Okay. It should be okay. narrow. Cool. Mm. Okay. The next one's fairly tricky, I thought. What pathogen would you suspect in a patient presenting with encephalitis with prominent extrapyramidal symptoms and recent travel to the USA. Let's see how our participants handle this one. That is going to be St. Louis encephalitis virus, I think. Well, I mean, pretty much everything in the JE encephalitis virus complex, but it's not going to be JE virus because that's more Southeast Asia. So, yeah, St. Louis, I'll think, with no virus, I'll think about that. And Murray Valley encephalitis, I'm not sure. But West Nile, I'll definitely be there. St. Louis, I'll definitely put it up there. Yeah. <laughs> Chicken pox. Uh, oh, I'd have to pass. I can't think of that one. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say one of the viral pathogens. Um, I just can't remember offhand now any specific one, but I would go with one of the viral pathogens. The Japanese virus. <laughs> I would have said um, Lyme's disease. <laughs> that would have been my answer. Well, you're going to think about the encephalitis viruses. You can think about West Nile virus. You can think about Eastern and Western equine encephalitis viruses. You can think about, I think, um, Zika virus can do it. Maybe Bovesin virus. The US can do it. In terms of um, encephalitis, I'm thinking more uh, viral causes, and from the USA, I can think of maybe West Nile virus. 
Okay, that was fairly interesting, Sipo. What do you think? Yes, no, thanks, Vin. Uh, very interesting answers. And again, I think a very difficult question. Mm. And probably so, because many may not necessarily be familiar with some of the pathogens that cause encephalitis in the U.S. Um, but I think certainly uh, viruses were identified as a possibility here. Mm. And I think it was a variation of arboviruses to flaviviruses as a cause. So if you look at encephalitides uh, in the U.S., certainly West Nile uh, comes prominently there. And that, mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, was an infection that was only introduced in the 90s in the U.S. And then you've got St. Louis encephalitis. And then the others are going to be the Western equine virus uh, and the Eastern equine viruses as well as causes of encephalitis. But, you know, that is not the only list of pathogens. There are other pathogens that certainly are going to cause encephalitis with a variation of uh, these extra paridermal um, uh, symptoms. I mean, probably, I was expecting some to, to probably talk about Lyme disease mm -hmm. mm. as well, mm. uh, as, as, a, as a possibility. It's interesting that nobody really mentioned that. You know, the herpes viruses certainly... Uh, depending on how severe they are, can manifest with some of these extrapyramidal uh, symptoms. It's a fairly broad list, actually. It's not one that you can just pinpoint and say it uh, a, a particular pathogen. Yeah. And uh, I suppose the travel to the USA could also be a bit of a red herring. So you'd really have to tease out incubation periods for each of the pathogens, et cetera, to see whether it really was associated with travel or not. Yeah. Yes, that's true, Vin. Uh, that's very, very true. I mean, probably the most common viral uh, infection associated with any travel would be just influenza. Yeah. Right? That's the most highest risk for anyone. Mm. And influenza can cause an encephalitis as well. Right. So, you know, it's, it's still part of that list. So it may not necessarily be all of these others that we've, we've mentioned. It's just uh, influenza could just also be uh, certainly in that list, mm. just because traveling, you know, sometimes you may travel from South Africa in the summer, but you're going to the U.S. in the winter mm. and there's a higher circulation of influenza and your risk of acquiring influenza, you know, is high during that period of, of your travel. Right, right. Okay. Thanks, Ibo. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't even think of the influenza issue. And I think with the 1918 influenza pandemic there was this pandemic well I, I, don't, I don't know if you would call it a pandemic but a, a subsequent increase in the cases of of something they called i think uh, encephalitis lethargica which was also typically associated with extrapyramidal symptoms so yeah that's it's a very a, a very interesting thought and then yeah i mean uh, other thing that i was just thinking about you know if, if the patient had to travel to the usa they were probably on an airplane and then you know could be people from anywhere in the world and that, that was uh, the, the source case of, of whatever this patient has presented with. Yeah. True. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the next question. What follow-up would you advise for HSV-1 encephalitis in a neonate? So let's see what the participants had to say. What follow-up would you advise for a HSV-1 encephalitis in a neonate? Okay, so you want to see if there's going to be any neurodevelopmental um, problems with that child. Um, so that's one thing that I'll follow up on that child. 
and then you want to also with any meningitis in units ocular and audiology you'd want to follow up that um yeah that's what i can think of so they would need to have audiology screens done uh, we need to monitor neurodevelopment i would say at least until the age of two I guess you would follow up just to follow up on neurological symptoms and whatnot and see if they need rehabilitation for meeting all the milestones. But in terms of whether they need, they need prophylaxis, I'm not sure. Neurodevelopmental follow-up, hearing screening. Yeah, um, and in terms of treatment, um, once you've treated it for, what, 14 days, um, you follow the patient up clinically to look for neurological symptoms, but um, I don't know much about the timeline on that. For neonates, I think um, they probably need to follow up uh, and monitor for neurodevelopmental delays and uh, complications such as seizures and perhaps even um, auditory assessments. Okay, great. And Sipo, uh, so I, I know you're an adult um um, infectious disease specialist, but uh, do you want to have a thought, have a think about this uh, this question, and um, what, what what are your thoughts? No, thanks, Ruan. A very interesting question, and I think also a very important one as well. And as you've heard, a variety of answers, many probably correct in terms of the kinds of uh, follow up that uh, people would do. And I think I think the first thing about this quite this infection in, in neonates is that. The duration of treatment is probably about 21 days, and it's usually with uh, intravenous acyclovir. And some of the, the guidelines then say that before you stop treatment, you would probably need to do a, a lumbar puncture and ensure that the HSV PCR is negative. And the reason for that is that if it's still positive, you may need to continue with therapy as there's a possibility of relapse. And if the PCR is negative, you could stop intravenous uh, acyclovir, and then move on to prophylaxis, which typically is described as probably 12 months of acyclovir as prophylaxis. I think the reason for doing that is just to prevent uh, relapse. But I think the other issues mentioned about ensuring, you know, proper neuro neurocognitive or neurodevelopment in the neonate is important. So looking out for the potential of the sequelae of having had encephalitis, uh, so, you know, hearing and uh, neurocognitive issues are important and, and ensuring for that. So, interesting how HSV in neonates is approached compared to adults. And I think the important issue here is just that diagnosis often can be difficult. And I think that's probably the message. Mm, definitely. Yeah. The last case of HSV encephalitis, I recall here, GSH, I think the patient primarily had psychiatric symptoms for quite some time before HSV encephalitis was considered. And that's an adult patient, right? Yeah, that, that was an adult patient. Mm. But yeah, clinical suspicion needs to be high. But um, I, I just wanted to, to ask now, if, if we assume HSV encephalitis in an adult, what would be your practice? Would you also do an HSV PCR on CSF prior to stopping or just go with the three-week course? I, I think there is some variation in the guidelines on that with, I think, the UK guidelines advising you do do that, but I haven't really seen it anywhere else. Yeah, so our guidelines, Ruan, we 
give the 21 days of treatment and we don't uh, often advocate for a PCR at the end of therapy. So ours would be if there's a good clinical response and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get your 21 days of treatment at the end of which uh, we stop and then we don't repeat the lumbar puncture at the end of treatment. So if there's been good clinical response and recovery at that end period, uh, we would discharge you. Okay. Okay, great. And we're coming to our last clinical question then. And that is, which meningitis causing pathogens do we vaccinate against? Let's see if our participants know their vaccinations or not. Okay, can I just give you an answer being both in public and private? So we do um, hemophilus, we do strep pneumo, um, we also do um, meningococcus, if I'm not mistaken, in private. Um, Trying to think of all the pathogens. So I said S pneumo, uh, H influenza, Neisseria, uh, what are the other pathogens? I can only think of those on the spot. Meningitis <laughs> causing pathogens. Okay, so just looking at the API, um, I don't know if BCG counts, but that would be for TB meningitis, um, pneumococcal vaccine, and Haemophilus. So we vaccinated against um, Streptococcus and pneumoniae, we uh, Nizera meningitis, Haemophilus influenza, and um, you can consider um, vaguely um, BCG maybe as, as part of, of, of the strategy for, for tuberculosis, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Yes, um, uh, yeah, and, and that's, if, if you think about the bacteria, um, other meningitis causing viruses, you can consider varicella. From the uh, EPI program, I can think of uh, strep pneumoniae uh, with the PCV um, vaccine and Haemophilus influenza type B and um, also um, perhaps BCG as well. And then in certain cases, um, uh, Neisseria meningitidis, um, like for people that are going on pilgrimage to Mecca or that are in overcrowded um, dormitories. Um, yeah, those that those vaccines may apply. No, no, serum manager to this. Yes. Strep pneumonia, Haemophilus influenza. We can do meningococcal meningococcal vaccine as well. Okay, Sipo. No, thanks, Vin. Uh, again, a nice approach by some of the uh, respondents to this mm-hmm. question. I think there was a recognition of the vaccines in the EPI and uh, the vaccines that children get. And I think that was mainly the focus of people's answers. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that we don't have a, a very good adult vaccine program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, which which of these vaccines would you give to, to adults? But I think at the list... So strep pneumo, the PCV13 is the vaccine that we Mm -hmm. have. Uh, Haemophilus influenza type B, again, uh, a vaccine that's uh, on our schedule. And then uh, meningococcus was also recognized uh, as a vaccine. And that certainly we can give uh, to children and also adolescents and adults, uh, just like the uh, uh, PCV13, which is strep pneumo vaccine. And then... The interesting one was a BCG, which I agree with. Uh, certainly BCG 
is important because again uh, prevents uh, uh, you know the severity of TB mm-hmm. uh, in children. No one mentioned or one person probably mentioned influenza. So the influenza vaccine, an important one, because I suppose during flu pandemics or even even during normal flu season, some people may get a severe form of flu. So, you know, the vaccine probably uh, probably does uh, prevent some cases of uh, encephalitis mm-hmm. uh, in, in that instance. And then mumps certainly was uh, lifted, which is, again, correct, uh, which we, we can do. Varicella vaccine um, is there, but again, mainly in the private sector. Mm. So I think that list is a quite a quite a long list, and I think it actually shows that the vaccines list is getting longer to prevent yeah. some of these vaccine preventable diseases, especially preventing severe forms of of infection. And I think you know the the ones that are probably coming into the pipeline. Uh, certainly something like Group B strep mm. would be another vaccine that uh, is on the horizon for us. Uh, a TB vaccine uh, that can be useful in sort of adolescents and adults is probably five to ten years down the line, but certainly one that potentially could fit this list. Mm. And what about the adult vaccination in CEPO for meningitis specifically, seeing as our participants didn't really think about that? Yeah, so I think adult vaccination is probably, you know, starting to emerge in many parts of the world and in this country in terms of looking at what uh, vaccines we should be using. So I think for adults, it's going to be influenza in this country because the burden of disease of influenza is high, even, you know, young adults with HIV and then the elderly. Then I think strep pneumo certainly is an important vaccine for adults and uh, the you know PCV13 uh, is a vaccine that can be used uh, in adolescents and adults mm-hmm. and then i think meningococcal mm. you know, uh, vaccination i think in key populations in adolescents and adults is is important right. uh, and one that even though our burden of disease isn't as high but meningococcal infection it's quite a devastating uh, infection, Absolutely. and it does make sense to vaccinate in certain key populations. So we certainly are vaccinating those without any spleens or a spleen that is dysfunctional for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And obviously, in people who have immunological dysfunction, um, they would get the vaccine. Adolescents, I think, especially those who are young adults going to university, are a key population because that's a risk factor for getting meningococcal infection. When we've seen outbreaks like in uh, universities, I think there was an episode, I think a year or two ago in Porch mm. University, uh, a student uh, you know, succumbing to um, meningococcal infection. Uh, and um, I think meningococcal infection in people older than 50, uh, certainly across the world is emerging as something that people are beginning to recognize as something as a group that is vulnerable, often because it doesn't present, uh, you know, in the recognized uh, way in which we recognize meningococcal infection Mm. in the elderly. So they may have uh, subtle presentations, almost look like a flu-like illness, where actually you're dealing with uh, meningococcal infection. So that population may be a population that uh, also needs to be considered for vaccination. Yeah. Okay, great. 
Thanks, Sipo. So I think we can start moving across now to the lab questions. Ruan, do you want to head into the first one? Okay, great. All right, so um, I'll move into the to the lab-based question. So first question, can you name any two laboratory tests that can differentiate between the steria species and group B strep cultured on an agar plate? Let's see what the participants had to say. Uh, one, it'll be the gram uh, results for listeria is gram positive bacilli. And then for the streptogalacticiae, it's uh, gram positive cocky. And then the second one is a catalase test. Uh, listeria is catalase positive and the, the streptococcus agalacticiae catalase negative. Um, listeria. Uh, we can use bilasculin, which is positive for listeria. And then the other test that can be used is a catalase, which is positive for listeria. Uh, I will do esculin bile, which will be positive for listeria and negative for group B streptococci, and also. Uh, catalase. Catalase will be positive for listeria and negative for group B streptococcus. Okay, great. So I, I think, uh, I mean, Vin, the, the main two that we were looking for here was gram stain and, and catalase. Mm. I mean, the, the gram stain, I, I think it's easy, to, easy to, to forget about it and not consider it a, a lab test, but I mean, it, it guides so much of what we do in the lab. And then something as simple as catalase, you, you know, um, it can tell you so much. But I mean, basically, that's really what, what we use to distinguish between at least Carinibacterium and Listeria on our blood culture bench. So I, I must say, when, when I discussed with one of uh, the, lab the lab technologists at our site, <laughs> their first response was just, why wouldn't you just mold it off it? Because we recently <laughs> had the instrument placed. Why? Why are you messing around with these bench tests? So, yeah, um, I don't know if if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think uh, you know, there's probably a whole list of tests um, as we know of, but they're also outdated, and basically, no one's really performing those tests anymore. Um, so I think, as you say, you know, it boils down to the very basic benchtop tests that can be done fairly easily. A gram stain is going to give you that answer very quickly. Listeria species would be gram-positive bacilli, and group B streptococci would obviously be uh, gram-positive cocci in chains and sometimes in pairs as well. And then a very quick catalase test would give you the answer between the two. And um, those camp tests, etc., which used to be performed in the past not really available and practiced anymore, as you say, because we have uh, much more rapid diagnostic assays available, such as the Malditoff. So previously, group B, um, group B streptococci would be camp negative, whereas Listeria would have been camp positive. I, I'm not really sure if there's anyone in the world who does that, but perhaps if the listeners are listening and you still do that, pop us something in the comments or let us know on social media if you're still doing that. Okay, shall we move on to the next question? Yeah, let's. Okay. So what is the minimum volume of CSF that the laboratory requires in order to perform MCNS testing for TB using a PCR? So the common one would be a gene expert and biochemical analysis. Let's see what our participants say. What is the minimum volume of CSF 
that the lab requires in order to perform MCNS, testing for TB using PCR, so that's our gene expert, and biochemical analysis. I think I'll just guess and say three mil. For each test or? For all together. All together. Uh, I think three mil. Three mils, okay. I get, I believe three mils. Mm, I will say around from two mils to four mils. Okay. So they all seem to be kind of around a familiar, a similar sort of um, volume that they're thinking of. Uh, Sipo, can I put you on the spot and ask what you think the volume should be? Thanks, uh, Vin. So I think the volume obviously uh, is important depending on the number of tests you're going to do, mm. right? And just uh, I think 10 mils of CS, uh, CSF should be sufficient to do some of the basic uh, laboratory tests. I think that would be my answer. Yeah. So, so I, th I suppose the problem with CSF, though, is that it's difficult to, to get 10 moles. But if you have access to 5 to 10 moles of CSF, then the more you send, obviously, the better the lab is able to process those. I was just looking at the NHLS handbook this morning before we started recording. And what it says there is that for each bacteriological and fungal test that you request, it should be the equivalent of 1.5 moles for each of them. However, we know that with the TB gene expert, the yield increases with the higher volume that you have. And that's why the general recommendation there is to go with 5 to 10 moles if you're requesting tests for, for TB PCR specifically. So I know it's not something that's routinely performed, but increasing the yield for TB usually is associated with uh, centrifuging. So although this is not something that's practiced across the board, there may be some laboratories who would be willing to or have it in their SOP to centrifuge um, a CSF specimen before processing for PCR. So if you've got one of those patients where you're having difficulty making a diagnosis of TB meningitis, but you've got a high suspicion, chat to the laboratory and see whether you can give them a large volume of specimen and get them to centrifuge it before they perform that PCR. Anything more from you, Ruan, on that one? Uh, no, that that's uh, that covers it. Okay. I mean, if if we if we think about about minimum, I just had a had a look at our SOP. At least for gene expert, I think five hundred microliters is the absolute minimum that mm. that we would use to run that assay. And another thing to just consider is I saw I noted the, the biochemical analysis. So I'm not sure how uh, how it's set up at your lab, but the, at our side. You know, we have a we have a chain of tests that would be done on a CSF. So, for example, the chemistry or hematology would take ownership of the, of the specimen, do the tests that they need, and then kind of sign it out, and and the the micro staff would sign it in. And I have noticed when when uh, adding after requests or or adding or or finding CSF for another reason that you know the further down the chain it can be problematic because each department will allocate the sample more than mm. they necessarily need so that, that that can sometimes be sometimes be a challenge especially if if you if you might have a, a clinician that did send you know the the 10 mil or, or what have you but there's a there's tests from multiple different departments you know the, the allocating process might leave us in micro with only about a mil and a half and then then we're you know, stuck in the difficult situation of we have to choose between the gene expert and the, the MCNS. Now, I'll, I'll just ask 
seep of that seep of that question. You know, if we're in that situation, just as an opinion, I mean, not a SOP. If we have to pick between TB um, gene expert and culture, you know, on CSF, well, what would you be your feeling? Which one should we pick? Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting one. But before I answer that, I was just going to say that um, if you look at sort of most clinical spaces, the LP trays, usually there are two sort of uh, test tubes uh, to send your samples in. Mm. And I suppose mm-hmm. um, what we're saying is that probably if you've got those two tubes sent in, at least collect 10 mils in each tube, which then yeah, speaks yeah. to how the lab then sets itself in terms of separating the you know, the samples. So one going to chemistry and chemistry taking what they need and saving what they don't use and then uh, microbiology uh, sort of taking what they need and leaving what they don't need and then probably leaving virology at the last people to sort of pick from from either two samples. But again, you know, the issue that you bring up about uh, culture versus gene expert, usually in meningitis, you're wanting a a test, you want to do a test which will give you a result very quickly. So the gene expert makes more sense because you will do it and uh, hopefully in two hours you will be able to give me a result. Whereas if you set it up for culture, I'm left none the wiser and still have to scratch my head about what do I do in terms of treating the patient. Mm. Obviously, in many instances, we, we make a clinical decision, but the test result is there probably to give us confidence in that we have made the right decision. Or to change tact quickly and consider something else. So it's good if money isn't an issue, it's good to do both. One will give me a result very quickly and give me give me a sense of how confident I am in, in my proposed diagnosis. And the you know, then the other obviously will just either confirm at a later date that you know I was really correct. But the gene expert I think is is probably what, what you should be doing first, given you're dealing with a serious infection and you want to answer rather quickly. But there's a caveat to the test performance, as everybody knows, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to move on to the next question. What should one do if one accidentally sniffs a plate of Neisseria meningitidis while doing a pick-off? So let's see what our participants had to say. Uh, I think you need to get the prophylaxis. I'm assuming they were not wearing a mask. Yes, they were not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. I'll ask the expert. Okay. I'm passing this one. I'll pass this one. Yeah. <laughs> no, that one I'm not sure actually. Would you like to pass it to the expert? Yes, I will pass it to the expert. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, you would think that this situation doesn't arise easily, but. Unfortunately, Nasir meningitis, we, we might not necessarily suspect it on day one. And we don't generally, as a rule, ins- open all plates in a hood or, or tape up all plates to prevent that occurring. So you might only realize that you've been working with Nasir meningitis once the Maldi result comes back or the next day or even worse when the, when the Vitek pops up uh, Nasir meningitis. Um, because, you know, a, a gram-negative coccus on, on gram stain um, you might easily be tempted to think, well, it's probably a, that's that might just be a that might just be a a cockabacilli, but you know, and and then you ultimately end up in the situation and have to ask yourself what we're going to do. But yeah, so I mean, sniffing a plate or or opening a plate outside of the hood 
that's not the highest risk for aerosolizing for aerosolizing Neisseria meningitidis, but of course, um, depending on the on the risk assessment of the exposure, you might want to consider using prophylaxis. Um, with the, the drugs generally that we use would be rifampicin, keftrax, and also profloxacin, depending on the specific patient and whether you can, for example, give that drug. Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts, Finn, on, on specific lab exposure to Neisseria meningitidis. Yeah, so if you're handling an actual specimen, one, especially a, a fluid specimen, then there's yeah, yeah. a higher potential for aerosolization of the pathogen. But usually when it's on an agar plate, there's very, very low risk of aerosolization um, mm. uh, from that perspective. And remember that an Neisseria meningitis is not a very high biosafety level organism. It's only really regarded as a level two. So ideally, if you're in the laboratory, you want to make sure you're working with the clinical specimen, the CSF specimen itself, under the biosafety cabinet, but there's much less of a risk with the plate itself. So if there is that kind of exposure, I would say certainly report it to your safety officer in the laboratory um, and, you know, undergo some monitoring. The patient, the staff members who you would maybe be a bit more cautious with and and monitor more closely would be a, a lab staff member who might be pregnant. Or if you know that when you've got one of your lab staff who's immunocompromised, you may want to watch them a bit more closely. But from a plate itself, there's very, very low risk of aerosolization. Mm-hmm. And then um, Sipo, if I, if I might ask, so if you're, if you're not consulted about, about a newly diagnosed case of Neisseria meningitis and particularly the, the clinicians that were initially taking care of that patient. So uh, how would you go about deciding who should get prophylaxis in that situation? Yeah, no, thanks, Ron. I think it, it, even in the clinical space, it relates to some of the things you've, you've uh, highlighted. Uh, so, you know, exposure to aerosolized particles. So if there are people who, for example, if the patient was intubated uh, and was going to be put onto a ventilator, so the clinicians who were intubating the, the patient would be regarded as, as high risk. And then obviously individuals who either maybe be pregnant or uh, immunocompromised uh, are people that you, you would have to really assess. Um, so I think it's, again, the that kind of risk. So it's not everyone who who's just saw the patient or is just next to the patient that would necessarily get uh, chemoprophylaxis. Uh, what's interesting is that I was looking at the data just about this issue with meningococcal exposure in terms of laboratory workers and sort of people, you know, the clinicians who, who are exposed. It's quite interesting that uh, often the clinicians recognize uh, their risk or exposure to patients rather quickly compared to lab workers. And often, as you've highlighted, that lab workers may have not necessarily or, or have probably underestimated their exposure and often don't um, report uh, an exposure event or don't seek uh, chemoprophylaxis afterwards. And it's brought to the the question of whether clinicians and uh, laboratory healthcare workers should all just be vaccinated for It's As you all know, it's not necessarily mandatory, but it's something that uh, is beginning to be sort of asked, just uh, given that some people may not necessarily recognize that they've had a, a serious exposure or high-risk exposure uh, to this infection. So there seems to be some evidence to suggest that both a laboratory and 
clinical healthcare workers should consider this as part of their vaccination uh, strategy mm-hmm. at the work, workplace, you yeah. know, just like uh, hepatitis B and influenza and COVID-19, etc. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So that brings us to our second last question then on the lab side. And that is, why are streptococcus pneumoniae colonies on blood agar described as draftsmen? Let's see whether our participants know this one. Why are streptococcus pneumoniae colonies on blood agar described as draftsmen colonies? Mm, No. Because they have um, a hole. But they look sort of like a button, like, yeah. Um, they are alpha hemolytic, and then with um, uh, kind of a dot, an in, innocent. Because mm, it looks like a donut, it has like that hello thingy around. Okay, so Ruan, can I put you on the spot with this one? Can you describe why we call them I was, worried, I was worried you would. <laughs> So morphologi- <laughs> morphologically, it, uh, you, you see essentially a, a crater within the center of the colony. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're also called carom coin mm-hmm. colonies, yeah. um, though that we, uh, we don't generally use that term, at least here in GSH. So as to the reason why that occurs, my standard literature search didn't bring up really any answers. But when asking around, um, it, it seems to be that... It has to do with the autolysis of the organism yep. um, that results in essentially dial for the colony in the center of the colony, which mm-hmm. results in the, the draftsman appearance. So I don't know if that's correct because it's not, a, not peer-reviewed and literature-based. Yeah, that's always been my understanding as well, Ruan, that uh, streptococcus pneumonia has... Um, has has a mentality of the greater good essentially so so in order for the colony to survive for longer as the availability of nutrients in the media becomes less the organism itself the older organisms within the colony will start producing autolysin to die out to allow the younger organisms in the colony to survive uh, further out into the agar, and that's what then gives it's the organisms at the center of the colony that are dying that causes that indentation of the colony. Sipo, have you seen them? Have you seen these colonies in the lab? Yeah, we've had the opportunity to to see them. Um, we visit uh, Ruan in the lab every Thursday, okay, and uh, we get the opportunity to see some of these wonderful colonies on agar plates. Nice. Okay, great. On weekly show and tell. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we have show and tell with our ID, our ID department as well. It's lots of fun. Okay, everyone, you want to take us into the last one? Cool. So last question. So why does Haemophilus influenzae grow better on chocolate agar? So let's see what the participants had to say. Uh, because the chocolate agar has the V and an X factor on it. Why does Haemophilus influenzae grow better on chocolate agar? Because chocolate agar provides both the X factor and the V factor. Because it requires both uh, X and V factors which are present on chocolate agar. Okay, cool. So last question and an important one. Why does Haemophilus influenzae grow on a chocolate chocolate agar or 
boiled blood agar and not or well let's let's phrase it as why does it grow on boiled blood agar but not grow on two percent so one of the one well one of the key biochemical tests that we use to identify haemophilus influenza or at least before Molditoff just uh you know took over all fun biochemical tests um was to look for the requirement for X and V factor or NAD and hemin, which generally in our lab, that's done by um, plating out the organism, forming a lawn and uh, putting factor impregnated a filter paper on, on that lawn that was created. And then essentially checking whether um, the organism will have grown just around factor X or uh, just around factor V or whether it's grown around only the the filter paper that has been impregnated with both factors. I think that's that that's where it comes down to. So the bold blood agar, you essentially have lies red blood cells, mm-hmm. which essentially exposes and releases both of these factors to the media, which allows the the haemophilus influenza to grow. Um, to get around that to a degree with 2% agar, we might use a staph streak, a staph aureus, which is also placed on the agar, and you might see haemophilus influenza colonies that grow around that staph streak. Now, uh, that, that's depending on where you read, uh, that's either, well, that's partially due to the staph aureus lies in the red blood cells, but um, in other texts, it'll be more that the staph aureus is producing those factors that uh, haemophilus influenza needs. But yeah, basically, the, the mechanical lysis of the red blood cells releases the factors that haemophilus influenza needs to grow. And it's quite an important um, distinction and why we don't necessarily only put up one plate when we're trying to identify gram negative, because, you know, the, on which plates the, the organisms grow is often very important for, to assist us in identifying the organisms. For example, there's a, there, there's a whole flow chart of what to do if your gram negative doesn't grow on a McConkie. And, um, you know, just if you just have the one plate, or just a bald blood agar, then, you know, it might take you additional biochemical tests or, you know, it might take the Maldi exactly the same amount of time. Yeah. Any any other thoughts on that, Vin? Yeah, no, I think you've covered it. That was basically it. And no, for any listeners who are thinking that the microlab staff are sitting and eating chocolate every day, unfortunately, very sad for us, it's not that kind of chocolate. And <laughs> we're definitely not eating it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do not think it would taste very nice. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, um, the, the inter- something interesting that I did learn this last week is so, so we did a visit to the media lab. And, you know, as expected, most of the medias would be made out of, you know, agar powders and, and mm-hmm. uh, fancy jars that are, that, are, that are delivered from chemical companies. But, you know, Nagler, it's just an egg. It's literally an egg that you can buy from pick and pay. There is no fancy, <laughs> special, anything. It's literally just an egg just that an you egg. put in the media. I, I, was, I, was quite, I was quite surprised. I thought it would be like special kind of irradiated, gamma irradiated, um, powdered albumin plus, you know, yolk powder. But no, that's just an egg. You crack, in, you crack into the egg off and that's it. It would just be cheaper to buy it from the supermarket that you create some fancy manufactured albumin powder. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, that was just like, you know, here was in, when we went into the, to the fridge and it's like, oh, okay, here's the, the powders from, from like MS, <laughs> MS, from MSD and here's the, the powders from, from XYZ. And then, oh, oh yeah, that's, uh, we got those eggs from Pick and Pay. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. Thanks, Sipo. Thanks, Ruan. That actually brings us to the end of our list of questions. And before we say thank you to Sipo, I want to say a big thank you to all the participants who were brave enough, anonymous and not anonymous, for giving us the answers on these questions. It's really made this uh, episode very, very interesting. And it's been nice to have um, more people on board. It kind of made it feel like it was a bit of a, a live event rather than a, a pre-recorded podcast episode. And Sipo, thank you so much for joining us today. And we really hope you'll be able to join us again and give us your expertise on, on the field of infectious diseases, TB, HIV. I, I know you've got so much more to offer, so we'd love to have you back on. No, thanks, Vin, and uh, thanks, Ruan. It's been great and fun to participate uh, today. And uh, just hope that I was able to share uh, my knowledge with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Sipo. Okay, Ruan, that's it from us, hey? Uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And it's uh, cheers to year three of Microbe Mail. May we grow further. <laughs> so remember, remember to give us that five-star rating and share with anyone who you think might be interested in listening to this content. And uh, that's it from me, Vin, your microbe messenger, as well as Ruan and Vinita. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Bye.